On April 2nd, 1867, nearly two years to the day after the end of the American Civil War, a group of Unionists held a convention in Little Rock, Arkansas, advocating for newly freed slaves to be recognized as citizens of the United States. One of the key speakers was politician James Hines, a 33-year-old transplant from Minnesota. After stepping onto the box set up outside the Capitol building, Hines made a remarkable declaration that a union party would be formed in the state of Arkansas. He and his fellow founders would, quote, dig deep down to the granite rocks of eternal truth and justice and upon them lay its foundation. The former slaves in the crowd were beside themselves. After all, here was a white Southerner fighting for their rights. He even referred to them as his fellow citizens. But just a year later, the infamous Ku Klux Klan began spreading chaos, fear, and violence throughout Arkansas. Incensed that civil rights and suffrage had been granted to former slaves, the Klan started plotting to murder these freedmen, as well as the white Republican leaders who advocated for them. Men like James Hines. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on James Hines, the first sitting member of Congress to be assassinated. His efforts towards uniting the nation after the Civil War, and particularly advancing the rights of Black Americans, drove a member of the Ku Klux Klan to take his life. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we'll delve into the Ku Klux Klan's formative years, the life and legacy of James Hines, and what exactly transpired on that dark day in 1868 when Hines was gunned down by a member of the KKK. Next week, we'll examine the aftermath of his murder. His death spurred further divisions between the two political parties, including accusations of a conspiracy among the Republicans. We'll also explore the fallout for the KKK and the impact on other American white supremacist movements in the century and a half since Hines' death. Nathan Bedford Forrest was a well-known Confederate general during the Civil War. Arguably the most feared cavalry commander in the South, he earned the moniker Wizard of the Saddle. His claim to fame was the Fort Pillow Massacre, which occurred near Memphis, Tennessee in 1864 when Forrest was 42. It was regarded as one of the most controversial events of the war. 
When Forrest's Confederate soldiers surrounded the Union-held fort and murdered its two commanding officers, he called for the remaining troops to surrender. Despite the fact that most of the garrison stood down, he ordered his forces to gun them down anyway. Around 300 black Union soldiers were slaughtered that day. Remember, Fort Pillow became a rallying cry for black soldiers in the Union Army. Union General William T. Sherman exclaimed, that devil forest must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury. After the fact, Forrest claimed he did nothing wrong when he killed the black soldiers of Fort Pillow. His obvious disdain for blacks made his eventual rise in a white supremacist hate group rather unsurprising. And he found like-minded allies easily, as he was able to play off of Southerners' wounded pride and economic anxieties in the wake of the war. When the four-year Civil War finally came to an end, the South was a shell of its former self. They entered a post-war period of rebuilding and regrowth known as the Reconstruction. During this era, the Republican Party sought to achieve equality for blacks. These policies were in direct opposition to Nathan Forrest's beliefs. He'd long held that white people were the superior race, and any effort to achieve equality was a blow to his ideals. On Christmas Eve, 1865, Forrest met with five friends at a drinking club in the small town of Pulaski, Tennessee. The men, all Confederate veterans, sat in front of the club's fireplace. The flames warmed their bodies amid the harsh winter cold, just as the whiskey they drank warmed their gullets. They formed a secret society that night that would ultimately become a hate group but it was originally founded as a social remedy for these young soldiers on we. The well-educated members turned to Greek when choosing the name for their club. One member threw out the word kiklos, meaning circle or cycle, while another added the word clan. And so the Ku Klux Klan was born. As the organization grew, it counted planters, merchants, and democratic politicians among its leaders. Many Klansmen were unwilling to accept change through law and order. Rather, they preferred what is known as frontier justice. Conducted without the presence of courts, judges, lawyers, and juries, this type of justice was immediate, personal, and often violent. What it really was, was revenge. Arson. Lashings. Intimidation. Murder. To conceal their identities, Klan members wore hooded robes. To kick the creep factor up a notch, they even fashioned head coverings for their horses. In the beginning, the robes were akin to ghostly white sheets, as the men wearing them were trying to convince their black victims that they were actually the spirits of Confederate soldiers who had perished during the Civil War. But former slaves were more likely to be frightened of living armed men than of the supernatural. After all, the nightly visits from mysterious riders reminded them of the slave patrols they'd been forced to endure prior to the war. In addition to ghoulish masks and pointed hats, 
The clan's uniforms eventually featured cross emblems, which were meant to tie their group to other Christian organizations of the past. They also adopted the image of a dark and ferocious dragon on one of their flags. The image was meant to strike fear into their victims' hearts, a goal they backed up with violence. Nobody seemed to take any concrete action to stop the Klan. While the southern government had been divided into districts under military leadership during Reconstruction, it turned out that many of the northern military officers in charge of rebuilding the South were actually opposed to the task. They believed that the seceding states deserved to be punished for their rebellion, not rebuilt. So they did little to help diminish the violence. In addition, many local officials who actually possessed the power to fight back against the Klan either supported its cause or were members of the organization themselves. In the summer of 1867, branches of the KKK gathered to establish what they called an invisible empire of the South. 46-year-old Nathan Bedford Forrest was named as the Klan's first leader, or Grand Wizard, an ironic or perhaps appropriate nickname to accompany the one he earned in the war, Wizard of the Saddle. After assuming his position as the highest-ranking officer of the KKK, Forrest went across the South, recruiting members and training them in their new roles. He presided over a hierarchy of other commanders, including Grand Dragons, who ruled over states or realms. Local chapters of the KKK were known as dens and always convened in a remote location at night. They never met at a member's home, regardless of the weather. Klansmen were also referred to as ghouls. These rather ludicrous titles were intended to be frivolous and nonsensical. They wanted to eliminate any political implications, so members had an easier time ensuring their anonymity. With this structure in place, the Ku Klux Klan spread terror across the South without fear of arrest or reprisal. There were a few who spoke out against the KKK's vigilantism, like Tennessee Governor William Brownlow. Even before he was elected, Brownlow was a controversial figure in Southern society, thanks in no small part to his pro-union paper, the Knoxville Whig. He combined his unpopular political opinions with crass language, making as many friends and allies as he did enemies. Brownlow advocated for criminalizing KKK membership. The only problem, besides a lack of popular support, was that Brownlow didn't know the identities of any KKK members. So in late 1868, he hired a private detective named Seymour Barmore to infiltrate the organization and return with a roster. After a few months, Barmore reported back that he'd compiled a list of active members but he never had the chance to deliver the information. On January 11, 1869, Klan members dragged Barmore behind a train to Nashville. Somehow, Barmore survived the torture just long enough for the Klansmen to finish him off in a nearby forest. They slid a noose over Barmore's neck and dumped his body in Tennessee's Duck River his corpse wasn't recovered for over a month. 
But Governor Brownlow was able to make the most of the PI's tragic demise. On February 20th, 1869, the same day Barmore's remains were found and identified, Brownlow advocated for formal legal resolutions against the Klan. Thanks in part to the public's sense of horror at Barmore's murder, he was able to get his legislation passed. Brownlow's victory was short-lived, however. Before the year was out, he was relocated to the northern states, presumably due to the bullying and intimidation he faced from the Klan. Emboldened by this victory, the KKK only heightened its efforts. It garnered national attention just a few years after its inception, when one of its members claimed the life of U.S. Representative James Hines. Up next, the Ku Klux Klan comes into conflict with Hines. Now, back to the story. The end of the American Civil War in 1865 brought great change to the country, especially in the southern states where slavery had been abolished. Now that they were freed, black Americans sought the same civil rights and liberties as their white neighbors. But the Ku Klux Klan, under the leadership of Nathan Bedford Forrest, met their liberation efforts with acts of intimidation and violence. The targets were not only former slaves, but their white allies as well. One of their most prominent early victims was James M. Hines. James was born on December 5, 1833, in East Hebron, a small town in upstate New York. He was the youngest of Charles and Jane Hines' six children. When he was 19, Hines moved to St. Louis, Missouri to study law and eventually graduated from Cincinnati Law School. After graduating, he headed north to Minnesota. After only a few months there, 23-year-old James was elected the district attorney of Nicollet County, a position he held for three years. In addition to serving in the courtroom, James also took a position on the battlefield. In 1862, he enlisted in Minnesota's militia and fought against the Sioux Native Americans who were bent on pushing white settlers out of the western part of the state. He ultimately served in the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. Then, during the Civil War, he served with the 1st Minnesota Cavalry's Mounted Rangers. In 1859, shortly before the wars ravaged the land, James Hines had married Anna Pratt in Minnesota. They eventually had three children together. After the wars, Hines returned to civilian life as a lawyer but soon determined that the small rural town of St. Peter didn't meet his growing family's needs. It was time for a fresh start. Within a month of President Lincoln's assassination on April 14, 1865, 31-year-old Hines made the move south to Little Rock, Arkansas. The same year, Hines was appointed to the Arkansas Supreme Court by fellow Democrat, President Andrew Johnson. This transition earned James Hines the derogatory nickname of Carpetbagger, which former Confederates bestowed on Northerners who came to the South after the Civil War. Carpetbaggers were perceived as opportunistic vultures crossing the Mason-Dixon line in an attempt to become wealthy and powerful, taking advantage of the down-and-out Southerners during Reconstruction. This stereotype wasn't grounded in any fact, but 
Southerners resented politicians like Hines who nabbed positions in states where they lacked deep roots. Hines joined the Arkansas Supreme Court right as he began to rethink his political allegiances. A lifelong Democrat, Hines was becoming disenchanted with the party's regressive policies toward black people. He decided to switch parties and become a Republican. He was particularly troubled by what he saw in Arkansas after Reconstruction. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in the United States, many pro-Confederacy government officials had enacted policies to curb former slaves' rights, keeping them second-class citizens. To combat this, black voices needed to be represented in the elected government. James Hines became passionate about achieving voting rights for blacks. He was one of the first white men in Arkansas to advocate for black suffrage and drafted legislation to support it. His work toward equal rights, including his support of the 14th Amendment, led him and other Republicans to be labeled as radicals. In early 1867, when Hines was 33, the legislation he'd proposed made its way to Congress. Federal laws were passed that required the Southern or rebel states to rewrite their constitutions. Rebel states had to adopt the 14th Amendment, which proclaims that all people born in the United States are automatically citizens of the country, regardless of race. The states were also required to extend the right to vote to black men. To fulfill the newly passed Reconstruction Acts, the Republican Party established a constitutional convention in 1867. 34-year-old Hines was nominated as a delegate by one of the largest majorities in the state. And as the convention continued, James Hines found himself officially nominated to run for the U.S. House of Representatives. James Hines celebrated this achievement, but it also inevitably made him a target of those who didn't share his views, like members of the Ku Klux Klan. And James's rise to political stardom was not without its scandals. In the spring of 1868, conflicts arose within the Republican Party in Arkansas between the carpetbaggers and white Southern Unionists who were known as scalawags. One such scalawag was a former Confederate colonel named James T. Elliott, who became a rival of James Hines. Elliott accused him of propositioning a sexual dalliance with a black chambermaid who worked on a steamboat. Although it's impossible to say with certainty that the accusations were fabricated, there's no real evidence that such an encounter ever happened. But the pro-scalawag press ran with Elliott's insinuations, further exaggerating them to make the story even more salacious. Soon, the adult female chambermaid became an underage boy. Despite local newspapers calling for Hines to withdraw his nomination, his supporters stood by his side. He was ultimately elected as a United States representative in April 1868 at the age of 34. Thanks to the Reconstruction Acts, black men turned out to vote in sweeping numbers. With their support, the Republican candidates in Arkansas were overwhelmingly victorious, leading to the dissolution of the Democratic-controlled government of the previous two years. And that summer, 
Arkansas became the first rebel state to officially rejoin the United States of America. In response, the Ku Klux Klan made its presence known in Arkansas under the command of Robert Glenn Shaver. In the months after the April 1868 election, KKK dens sprouted up everywhere. Former slaves and their Republican allies were targeted, first with intimidation at the polls and ultimately with violence. Between August 21st and August 27th, 1868, 11 people in Arkansas were killed at the hands of Klansmen, and nine of them were black. Governor Clayton called on the state militia to restore order, especially at the polls, but the violence endured. When a county registrar was assassinated on September 19th, 1868, it prevented other registrars from doing their jobs. They were too frightened to return to work and risk becoming the next victim. When Governor Clayton hired investigators to look into the Klan, one of the men working the case was also murdered. This attempt to intimidate voters was particularly distressing for James Hines as the upcoming presidential election in November was the culmination of everything he had been working toward. Hines devoted all of his energy to encouraging black men to fulfill their civic duty and to campaigning for Republican candidate Ulysses S. Grant. As the former Union general, Grant was dedicated to cementing Abraham Lincoln's legacy of a united and free nation. On the Democratic side, presidential candidate Horatio Seymour sought to rescind the civil rights bestowed upon former slaves, including suffrage. And in the months leading up to the 1868 election, the Ku Klux Klan committed as many as 1,000 murders. As Hines wrote in a letter to the secretary of the Republican Congressional Committee in Washington, D.C., we are terribly in earnest, having left but three alternatives, to carry the state, leave it, or die. We are determined to carry it. Hines also corresponded with his wife, Anna, while she stayed with their two daughters at his mother's house in New York. That September, he shared with her that the KKK had sent him threatening letters while he attended political gatherings in the southernmost counties of Arkansas. Hines took these death threats very seriously, as other Republican leaders had already been attacked and even killed. As a precaution, Hines always traveled with at least one other associate. In mid-September of 1868, the Klan issued Hines a cryptic warning when they nailed a coffin to his door. They were essentially giving him an ultimatum. Either you leave or you die. Mere days later, the KKK acted on its threat. Up next, the assassination of James Hines. Now, back to the story. In the post-war South, the Ku Klux Klan's influence had become widespread. Under the tutelage of Grand Wizard Nathan Bedford Forrest, they terrorized newly freed blacks as well as their white Republican advocates. Despite losing his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, Lawyer and politician James Hines was intent on advancing the rights of former slaves. 
So he set out on the campaign trail in support of Republican presidential candidate Ulysses S. Grant. In October of 1868, Hines and other Republicans agreed to attend a political event in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. On Friday, October 16, 1868, James Hines left Little Rock for the last time. The steamboat Caldwell carried Hines and his associate Joseph Brooks up the White River toward Lambert Plantation. About midday, and just six miles shy of their destination, the captain of the boat learned that his passengers were leaders in the Republican Party and ordered them to disembark. Now running late for their appointment, Hines and Brooks rode into the village of Indian Bay to ask for directions. Around 1.45 in the afternoon, they approached a local man in a gray suit who provided them with directions to the meeting at Lambert Plantation. As soon as Hines and Brooks left, the man loaded a double-barreled shotgun. While Hines and Brooks didn't recognize the man, he recognized them. As secretary of the Democratic Committee of Monroe County, George W. Clark was well aware of the event at Lambert Plantation and that James Hines and Joseph Brooks would be attending. Very little is known about Clark or his life prior to the assassination. We don't even know how old he was at the time. What is known is that Clark was a member of the Ku Klux Klan in Arkansas. So he wasn't the least bit surprised by the presence of these Republican leaders. Clark was overheard saying, if I see them, they won't speak today, for I shall put daylight through them. This was especially ironic, as earlier that same day, several members from both political parties had signed a peace resolution, vowing to avoid violence at the meeting. And Clark was among the signatories. After they left Indian Bay, Clark followed Hines and Brooks on horseback. He reached them about a mile later in a thickly wooded area of the highway. When Hines and Brooks saw him approaching, they weren't concerned. They probably figured that he was attending the meeting as well, and James Hines considered this county to be one of the least dangerous they'd traveled through during their tour of speaking engagements. As for the shotgun? Well, in rural Arkansas in 1868, it wasn't uncommon to carry a weapon like that. Brooks' horse was in the lead by about 50 yards. When Clark caught up with Hines, he rode alongside him for a beat. The two exchanged words, and as fellow representative Logan H. Roots later described it, Clark was, quote, smiling as Judas may have smiled when he kissed his lord and master. Then, Clark fired. His first shot hit Brooks in the back, though not fatally. Then Clark turned his attention to Hines. The two men were so close, his shotgun barrel almost touched Hines' torso. Clark unloaded the full contents of the gun into Hines' back. Brooks' wounded horse, still carrying its injured rider, took off in a panic toward the meeting at Lambert Plantation, and Hines slumped off of his steed and into the dirt. While he lay bleeding out in the road, he wrote the following message on the inner band of his hat. 
My name is James Hines. I am shot in the body and shall live only a few minutes. My wife is at East Greenwich, New York. Wife, take care of Jenny and Annie. When Brooks reached Lambert Plantation, he sent several people back to the site of the shooting. They discovered Hines about an hour later, still alive but fatally injured. He knew he wouldn't recover. But despite his resignation, a doctor was sent for. While he drifted in and out of consciousness, Hines was able to identify George W. Clark as the perpetrator, though the records don't state how or when exactly he learned his assailant's name. When a doctor finally arrived, he confirmed what Hines already knew to be true. He would not survive. Before Hines could be transported to the nearest hospital, he died. An instrument of change was gone too soon. A beacon of inspiration was extinguished forever. And he wouldn't be the last to die for his cause. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of James Hines' assassination. We'll discuss the impact of his death on his inner circle and on the government. We'll also explore the way this assassination shaped the KKK for generations afterward. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Andrea Vasillo and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 